0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. all. Yeah, it's gone so long. Oh, it's good to see you. Love to hear your voices and your greeting with one another. It's awesome. Um, I want to, first of all, thank you. Um, I know that A lot of you have reached out and a lot of you have engaged with um, a lot of the devastation happening in Maui. Um, My old church is actively involved in doing a lot of things and just I appreciate your prayers and so many of you are so kind in reaching out to me and I appreciate that but keep them in prayer. My heart just breaks for... um, uh, people in a culture that so deeply are connected to their history and their heritage, and they remember those things, like they grow up reciting and learning their heritage, and the things that have happened where, they, ha- it's, a, it's a community that um, kind of like uh, we see in a lot of the Old Testament, like when God moves, let's build something. When God moves, let's build the reminder. They have a lot of reminders in their culture, which um, the memories aren't gone, but the places obviously got consumed, and so um, we may have quite a few friends who lost homes and their businesses, and, and, but also what I know about the community of Maui and the people of Hawaii is they deeply care for each other. As a pastor there, I never once had to give a message on how to care for a, another person <laughs> that was just ingrained. I didn't have to do like a message on, please get into small groups. They already were in small groups. It's called families and neighborhoods. Now, they didn't always know what to do in those small groups, but that's who they are. So continue to pray for them. I deeply appreciate that. Let me get into our word today. I have a lot of things I wrote down. So we'll see how far I get. In a uh, survey of nearly 1 million high school seniors, taken a while ago, 70% stated that they had above average leadership skills. If you're not good with math, that is impossible but only 2% felt their leadership skills were below average. Of college professors, 94% of them said they do above average work, and 50% of them said they were in the top 1% of all professors. (laughs) In one large lecture class at Cornell University, 83% of the students predicted that they themselves would buy flowers in an annual charity drive for the American Cancer Society but only 55%, they predicted only 55% of their fellow students would do the same as them. The actual percentage, four weeks later, was 43% total. In another class, 90% claimed they would vote in an upcoming presidential election, but they said only 40% of their peers would. The actual percent was 32. Ironically, people even state that they are more likely than their peers to provide accurate self-assessments they're uncontaminated by their own bias. The inability to self-assess is something that permeates pretty strong in our culture. Can you imagine if this same view, where we assess ourselves higher than other people, is taken into positions of authority, of influence. What might happen? We have a large text today. Let me read it to you. It'll be up on the screen. There's a lot here, and it's beautiful. It says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Skip forward a little bit. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins." There's a few things in here, in case you are wondering. And we can't wiggle out of this text by thinking this is just for them back there. This is just the temple. Remember though, the book of Mark is a book about discipleship. It's about following Jesus' will well, and however, this is a very strange text. It's strange because the very last miracle that's recorded that Jesus did while he was still alive was a curse. The last miracle brought death. It's not a healing. It's not an exorcism. He didn't go out with a big bang. He's in a conversation with a tree and tells it to die. Many commentators have a lot of problems with this, a lot more confused by it. And this sounds kind of pompous, but I don't think I am. I believe today's text gives us a unique glimpse into what Jesus desires for his church. This includes you and I. What I'd like to do this morning is take a look at this whole chapter or through this through this one phrase, through this lens. Mark 11:12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Jesus, you are hungry. As we see this morning, it wasn't because you needed a snack, but Jesus, you hunger for things. You hunger for us. We so often just talk about what we're hungry for, and then we just hope you're there when we need you. But this tells us, no, Jesus, you have longings and are hungry and hunger for something better from us. Help us in our unbelief. In your name, amen. So what was Jesus hungry for in this passage? Well, in the Gospels, hunger isn't just hunger. It isn't just those commercials where someone's acting foolishly because they're hangry, if you will, and all they need is a Snickers bar to make them back right. One example might be in John chapter 4, after he speaks with the woman at the well and she has left to gone to tell people how amazing this new Messiah is, the disciples have returned back from getting food for them, and they said, Rabbi, do you need something to eat? And he says, he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then they respond like, wait, does he have like snacks? (laughs) Is Jesus holding out on us? Has he got some of those protein bars, some of those hot Cheetos? What's happening here? They're like, does he have things that we don't know? Then Jesus says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is talking about food here that's in response to a faithfulness to God. It's about a hunger that goes way beyond food and a fulfillment that food can never provide. It's exactly what Jesus promises in John chapter 6 when he says, "'Then Jesus declared, "'I am the bread of life. "'Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, "'and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty.'" This is about the deepest longings that we have to be known, to be heard, to be seen. This is the hunger that drives all of us to do all sorts of things. What Jesus is saying is that hunger that you have is really for God. It's kind of like what St. Augustine wrote when he wrote this You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It's that thing that people say that I'm passionate about this, or this is my passion project. It's something to make a difference. And Jesus is saying, the bread I have feeds that hunger. Though you are pursuing it in many different ways, it really only comes from me. And the last reference is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these things that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be what? Will be filled. It's a longing that no food in the world can reach. This is a desire for any one of us to see that justice and righteousness happen in the world. For Jesus, hunger is not just about hunger. So in Mark, I believe when Jesus says that he was hungry, he really was hungry, but his hunger was more than food. This hunger was about his desire. It was about his longing. Have you ever thought that maybe God too has a hunger, that God too has a longing, that God too has a desire? So often we just think about it in our thing, God, fill my desire. But could Jesus be saying the same to you? What is his longing? It was about his desire for his brothers and sisters to do the will of his father. Luke's gospel gives a little better picture of this. In Luke chapter 19, he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. This may feel like a little leap for you, but God is saying his plan was always to show himself through Israel, through the chosen people. And Jesus is saying that if you knew what would bring you peace today, that I was here to bring you peace, it would be so different. This is the longing that Jesus had that even from back from Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. God's blessing doesn't just come so that you are more fulfilled. God's blessing says, I will bless you to be a blessing. It's a conduit, it's a pathway. The religious leaders, though, they just assumed that they were in the right. And they had drifted away from any correction or any kind of this, that people pushing back on them. They were not receptive about their conclusions that they had made. They weren't very good self-assessors. Okay, I know you want to ask me, Dale, why is he angry at a fig tree? I know. Anyone? Dale, why is he angry at a fig tree? Thank you for asking. That moves us along in our sermon. In Old Testament uh, literature, both historic and prophetic, and in a lot of Jewish writings that took place at the time of Jesus, the fig tree was actually a symbol of Israel. But more specifically, it was a symbol of the temple in the middle of Israel. So, for example. The Garden of Eden is where the story of a temple begins. It's the place of intimacy between humanity and God. The garden was the first temple, the place where the presence of God dwelled intimately with people, God with his people, and they had fellowship in him. And his intention was that they were to take this and pass this sanctuary on to the world. But that didn't happen. After humanity's rebellion against God, they were naked and sewed together what? To cover themselves. Fig leaves. It's the only tree mentioned, literally, like we know of the tree of the good and knowledge of good and evil, but as as an actual tree mentioned in the Garden of Eden, that there was fig trees, that they used it to cover themselves up, but it also became a symbol for the temple because they knew that tree was there. So when it says that Jesus was hungry and goes back to look for a fruit on this fig tree, it's not just about this tree. Jesus isn't all of a sudden randomly ticked off at a tree because that would be some serious hangry. It's about the temple. It's about the purpose of the temple. It's about the fruit of the temple. It's about the significance of the temple. And if you wanna know where I'm heading, Who now is the temple of God? Us. The Holy Spirit has come and made us the temple of God. But we know this to be true in the book of Mark because he's using this rhetorical device called the sandwich, which is like the temple, the fig, the temple. It shows the things connected there. Look see what happens right after he curses the tree. On on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. This is quite the scene, if you will. They probably don't even know who this guy is. Maybe he just came in, on, he came in on a donkey. Maybe some were there. But all of a sudden, this craziness begins to happen. Jesus passionately turning things over. Imagine if someone was at a farmer's market downtown this morning and they were protesting the injustice of the whole farming system. So they start flipping over cabbage and carrots and all sorts of things and craziness. And you'd be like, what's happening over there? I hope my carrots are still there. That's the kind of confusion that's happening here. But remember, Jesus' hunger was about his desire, his passion, his longing. He wanted Israel to live into their vocation. And what was their vocation? To be a light to the world. The temple was a place where the nations were supposed to come and to commune with God, to commune with Him. The temple housed literally at this moment the very presence of God. And if you wanted to get near to God, you would go to the temple. That's why there were so many people even there at this time. It was Passover time, and they had pressed in to get a piece and to see who God really was to get near to Him. But what does Jesus find when he enters the temple courts? Let me talk a minute just about this one court where he did this. This was a court where non-Jews were allowed to come in. This was as close as they could get to the presence of God. The Gentiles were there. It was the opening court, and these were the things that are happening, come near to God, and you get to experience this. What were they experiencing? Busyness, business activity, what were they not experiencing? There was no prayer. There was no depth. There was no light. So when they came to experience God, but they were promised to, they were on a journey, what they got was commerce. What they got was busyness. So often we will look at this and go, you see, Jesus turned over that things because he doesn't like fundraisers at church. That is not it. I am sorry if that's the thing you grew up in. Look, you should never sell a book because Jesus turned over the tables. That's not what he's talking about here. Of course, some of this is implied where there may have been some things where people were being taken advantage of, but we're missing the point of Jesus' hunger. See Jesus know what God has intended for the temple, and that was intended to, to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And when he looked around and saw all the things happening, it looks like life, right? It's a packed house. Everybody's there. They're buying and selling sacrifices. They're doing all these things. And it looks like God's really moving. He must be moving. The place is full, there's activity. But Jesus looks at it and says when something has the appearance of life but has no fruit, it's dead. What were you supposed to do at the temple? It's supposed to be a place you meet with God. From the man that's known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says this, True prayer is an approach of the soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. It's not the utterance of words, it's not alone the feeling of desires, but it is the advance of the desires of God, the spiritual approach of our nature towards the Lord our God. True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far from that. It is spiritual commerce with the creator of heaven and earth. The problem that Jesus saw was that there was a different kind of commerce going on here. This made me think yesterday morning, I wonder what Jesus would come and flip over today. Oh sure, we have our opinions and it's often very connected to the things that we just don't like. What would Jesus flip? What's getting in the way? When people come to meet with God, when people come to experience who God really is, what are they seeing? Now back to the fig tree and Jesus' hunger. Jesus goes to eat from this tree and there's nothing there. There's this interesting thing that Mark writes because he says it was not the season for figs. You might be thinking, okay, Jesus, this is totally unfair. You held this 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 fig tree accountable for something that was impossible. Has Jesus lost his mind? It was springtime as it was time for the Passover. Winter was gone. And what fig trees would have that we know is these little nodules that hadn't fully blossomed into fruit yet. But for travelers going by fig trees, they would often grab these blossoms or grab even this nodule, which was the beginning of fruit, and grab that and eat that. So when Jesus sees this tree that has the appearance of life from the distance because it has leaves and goes to it and, and says it doesn't even have the hint of fruit, he curses it. Why? Because it looks like it has life and growth, fruit and activity, but it's dead. This isn't about a tree. There might be some, nothing more deceiving than the appearance of life and offering no life there. This fig tree is the temple of Jerusalem. It has a reason for its existence. It was to offer shade and fruit to the world, but it hadn't lived into its mission. And not just that, in the middle of this, Jesus begins to teach. He says, and as he taught them, he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus indicates the primary purpose of the gathering of God's people of the temple for it to be a house of prayer. This is where heaven and earth comes together. This is where people can encounter God. But Jesus calls it a den of robbers. Why? A lot of people think a den of robbers meant Jesus was mad because they were buying and selling things. But this was kind of a needed system in the temple where people would come and bring their spotless lambs and bring their doves for the sacrifice. What's really going on here, and I want you to listen to this. Robbers do not rob in their own den. The den is where you go to hide. What Jesus is saying The robbers are going to the temple to hide. (laughs) Using God to hide from God. How do we do that? Well, we go through the movements, we go through the motions. We have this covering, yet on the inside, there's no fruit. Jesus is actually quoting something from Jeremiah. Well, God tells Jeremiah, Stand in front of the temple and declare this. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What Jesus is saying is the temple has become a safe place for the robbers to hang out in a den. Once again, in our own poor self-assessment, we often think of others in this situation. I had to turn this on me and go, how am I hiding from God by using God? There's times we can paint a picture of our own holiness, of our own, like I read my Bible this morning, so I'm good. And we start to believe the lies that have been given to us. Then we turn and look at it this from another way. One of the reasons why Jesus had such amazing compassion to the sick all throughout his ministry, we see in the book of Mark. It's because they couldn't lie. A blind person couldn't lie that they were not blind. A person who couldn't walk couldn't lie that they couldn't walk. They just came to him in honesty. This is where I'm at, Jesus. And so even when they cried out, what do you want me to do if I want to see? Jesus' compassion got engaged from just pure honesty, truthfulness, Vulnerability, while the religious leaders had this kind of cave, this protection of religiosity. How dark is the darkness of a person when they think they're in the light, but they're really in the dark. One of the things that I've seen in being a pastor the past few years, many years, is that people have a hard time identifying sin in their life. not not because of a place of shame, I'm not talking about like shame, I'm just like in our culture of like, no, you're good, everything's good, don't, don't do that. Like you're, you're fine, you're fine, you're, everything's okay. We have a hard time even seeing some things that might be fostering on the inside of us. Well, Jesus has a hunger and a longing for you. You see, it's not weakness that is the problem. In our relationship with God, it's denial. It's the hardening of our hearts. We start to believe lives that, ah, I don't really need to be that holy. I don't really have to tell others about Jesus. Isn't that kind of out of fashion? I don't really have to love my enemy. I mean, I could tell people I do. I don't really have to do that, do I? I can read my Bible and go to church and just kind of feel fine about my life, Right? Once again, this isn't about works. It's about Jesus wanting something more for you. Author Ronald Roheiser, and he's talking about, back in early in Mark, when Jesus is talking about a sin that isn't forgiven, it's blasphemy. He writes about it this way. Be careful not to lie, not to distort the truth, because the real danger is that by lying, you begin to distort and warp your own thoughts. If you lie to yourself long enough, eventually you will lose sight of the truth and believe the lie and become unable any longer to tell the difference between truth and lies. What becomes unforgivable about that is not that God does not want to forgive, but that you no longer want to be forgiven. God easily forgives all your weaknesses and will always forgive anyone who wants to be forgiven. But you can so warp your own conscience that you see God's truth and forgiveness itself as a lie, as Satan, and see your own lie as truth and forgiveness. That is the only sin that truly puts us outside of God's mercy, not because God refuses to extend mercy further, but because you can look mercy in the eye and call it a lie. We lie to ourselves. We could exchange truth for something else. So what does this teach us about Jesus' hunger for us? Two things he's hungry for. One, he desires fruit. He just does. I I can't explain this any other way than to read what he said and hear this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the garden. He cuts off every branch. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. You, already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. It is impossible to fulfill God's hunger for you unless we remain in him. This is a brutal verse that says he cuts off branches that do not bear fruit. I think this is a sign of how serious Jesus really is. It's not a sign of me how serious I am. It doesn't matter how serious I am. It's how serious Jesus is. He's like... Fruit is the thing. He also desires that we live into our identity of who he calls us to be. He says that we are the light of the world. He says that we are the salt of the earth. Don't hide it anymore. As C.S. Lewis writes, following Jesus is a fight to make things right with him. The Christian life is not just this passiveness, It's not a physical fight, but it's a fight against the spirit of the air, against the temptations, against those things to help make them right again. I'll take your silence as approval. Jesus ends this section with what some say is a disconnected thought, but I don't think it is. Have faith in God, Jesus answers. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, which is a common phrase they used at that time, even in Psalms, it says that God could melt a mountain like wax. He's saying that whatever difficulty you're going through, God is bigger than that. In case you're wondering, like, how do I pray to get a mountain into the sea? It's a metaphor. But God could literally do it. This isn't about how, how do you pray. This is about God. So let's see this. What can God do? God can throw a mountain into the sea. Go throw yourself into the sea. And if you do not doubt in their heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I will tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, when you live out the rule of the temple, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you and your sins. This is connected. This is what meeting with God is. This is the purpose of temple. This is the purpose of church. This is the purpose of being the temple of God as a spirit-filled person. It's the rhythm of communing with God, forgiving one another, confessing with one another. It's all of this together that Jesus is saying that this is the way of the kingdom. It's a place of prayer and forgiveness. Now Jesus is in the center of that. Jesus is teaching his followers again and again to the idea that it's impossible to separate the love we have received from God from the love that we're called to extend to others. Man, if a fig tree represents my life, I sure hope Jesus isn't cursing it. That he doesn't just see a life filled with leaves. He sees fruit. He sees benefit. Because he's in the middle of it. Remy Adelki wrote an autobiography called Transformed. It's an amazing book. In an article talking about it, he references this. Let me end here. Remy was born in Nigeria and lived the first few years of his life in a royal family with extreme wealth. Everything took a drastic turn, though, when his father died. They lost all their money, and his mother moved him to the Bronx. At eight years old, he began to steal, and when he went to high school, he began selling drugs and running a fake sneaker business. By the time I was 19, I was bringing in thousands and thousands of dollars, he recalls. I was using that money to fund a record company because that was my dream. It took Adelke getting into a very bad deal with a drug dealer who showed, up at, who showed up at his apartment and threatened both his life and his mother's for him to wake up and change everything. He vowed that very night to leave his rough and dangerous life in the past. For the next six months he thought hard about what to do next. I decided to join the military, says Adelki. I finally came to the realization that I had nothing left. I had failed at everything in my mind. I had failed at my record company. I even failed at selling drugs. I failed at all of these things. And I was like, what else do you have left, Remy? You have absolutely nothing left. I had to hit rock bottom first. At the recruiter's office, he met Tiana Reyes, a woman who would change his life forever. When she ran a background check on Remy, she saw he had two warrants out for his arrest. I tried to bolt out of there because I knew I wouldn't be able to join the military now, he says. But she asked me where I was going and if I had a suit. Adeliki told her no, but that he did have nice pants and a shirt. Reyes said to come back the next day. When Adeliki showed up, she took him to a judge in New York and a judge in New Jersey and advocated on his behalf. She told the judge that I had made mistakes, but I was going to join the military. Tiana asked him if he could give me a chance and expunge my record so that I could enlist. Both judges unanimously said yes. They said what I was doing was an act of patriotism. And even bigger, that if Tiana could vouch for me, then they would say okay. It was that tangible act of mercy that someone advocating for me that I began to understand God, Adeleke says. God changed everything. It's hard for me to pinpoint one specific thing, but my mindset changed. I looked at failures differently. I think that was one of the biggest changes. When you have a failure or a setback or a heartbreak, whatever comes your way, when I didn't have the Lord, I just would go into a dark place. But when I had the Lord in my life and I was walking with him, it was just like, all right, I know he's with me. Our church needs to be like Tiana Reyes, to advocate, to stand up for somebody else who's never been stood up before and to go before God and say, forgive him. A tree that bears no fruit says, you've sinned, you're on your own. I'm okay. But a tree that has fruit says, let me bring you to God. Let me be different with you. Let me stand up for you. Because going through the motions does not bring life, but honesty with God and others. That is the way of the temple. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? The Holy Spirit says to so you are now the temple of God. When people are near you or people are near me, though I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, does God make sense? Or have I created this courtyard that gets them close enough, but what they're seeing about God is busyness and business and activity and nothing about God? If that's the condition of our church, God, have mercy on us. If that's the condition of you, uh, you said, I've been, I've tried to find God, but all I see is hypocrisy. All I see is people saying they're one thing and they're not. On behalf of them, I apologize. I repent. My God is big enough to move mountains into the sea, to melt mountains like wax. What I want you to see is that you, can have intimacy with him. Let's pray. Father, I <sighs> oh. Father, I repent of the times I have invited people into my courtyard that is just confusion that is not of you, that is, gives such a distorted reflection of who you really are. And I do that and I hide. I go, man, look how godly, how, look how good a great pastor I am by doing things and acting certain ways, but all I've done is created a courtyard of confusion. May my courtyard be pure. May the activities of my life be right. Father, I pray for my church this morning and my friends, may their courtyard be pure for those who need to be freed today. And I believe there are people here this morning, you need to experience freedom in your life. You need to be freed from something that that God wants to free you from. But Satan is hanging on to it. He's like, nope, 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 nope. If you do that, God wants to free you today. The house of God, the people of God should be a place of repentance, should be a place where forgiveness is received, should be a place of grace. It has to be a place of prayer, of where we commune with God. So as we gather, may that be so. Jesus has a hunger, my friends, deep for your life, for you. He has a hunger for you. Not for you to be unnecessarily like out of works perfect. He just has a hunger for you. Know the God that can melt mountains. Know the God that can move mountains into the sea. Know the God who can bring truth and meaning to your life. He has a hunger for Calvary Church. Be the church that does not confuse people. Let go of the things in your courtyard. And allow him to be in. He has a vocation for you. He wants things for you. Father, I ask for your forgiveness in my life for the forgiveness of the life of this church. May it be so that people see you clearly. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us.
1: What an incredible truth to sing that the Creator of the world has never failed us, that He is for you, He's with you. And what a powerful word that Jesus wants that relationship with you, every single one of you. He came so that He could have that relationship with you. And then so that we could go he could clear the spaces out so we could go and give that relationship to others to give that peace and that love to others to give the, the wholeness and the completeness the freedom and forgiveness that comes only through Jesus he offers that to you he offers it to me so that we can offer it to others and invite others in so may we consider ourselves as the temple with the Holy Spirit the temple of God to be the temple that allows other people to experience that goodness it, it's, it's a powerful thing to come together and sing these truths, to hear these truths, to do this together. And so I'm, I'm grateful um, to spend this time this morning. And, and if, if you had a moment today where God, he just wanted to free you from something, if you, if you felt that freedom, we, w- we would love to talk with you about it. Um, so anyone up here, up front, after, st- after service, up, up on the stage, anybody with a green lanyard, anybody with a silver lanyard, anybody wearing a lanyard probably, We'd probably like to talk with you about what you experienced this morning. So we'd love, we'd love for you to share what, what God did in your heart this morning. Um, before we go, I just want to just call your attention to a couple of things to remind you of some details coming up. It's all on your handout here, so take this with you. Be reminded of it. If you don't want to take the paper, you can fill out the Connect card and get the weekly email with all this stuff. But on the front, there's one thing that I want you to remember, that next week we have how many services? All right. At what time? Alright, we're 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 dialed. We got it. So one service in here at 10 o'clock, barbecue afterwards. And one thing I just want to invite you to, we want to celebrate baptisms because baptisms are the the, the physical image. It's a symbol of the change that you've experienced in your heart, the change that Jesus has brought into your life. And so if you have not been baptized or maybe, maybe it's something that you didn't choose for yourself at some point, but you'd like to make that decision, we'd love to talk with you about it. So baptism, we want to celebrate that next week if, if that's something that's interesting to you. Again, anybody with a lanyard, they'd love to talk with you about it. May God bless you. May you know his presence this week. May you live that presence to others as you are a living temple empowered by the Holy Spirit. God bless you as you go this week.